I'll rise. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here this, this morning for a wedding. Would you pray with me? Father, we are uh, humbled and excited and honored that you would call your church your bride. And as we think about it and as we celebrate that truth this morning, I pray you reveal yourself, the beauty of Jesus to us in a richer, deeper way than we've perhaps ever experienced. And this would be a holy moment, a a moment where your word speaks deeply and truly into us. We pray these things in Christ's name for his sake. All God's people said, amen. You know, you were invited, right? You may sit down. You were invited for this moment, right? And you're wondering, where's the bride, right? And you know what the answer in God's word is? Yeah, it's you. Yeah, and I hope you got the invitation because from the very beginning of Scripture, it's been giving you invitation to this moment. God created you. He shaped you at the very beginning of history for this moment in history that Revelation 19 unveils. It's a moment where you walk down the aisle. I know for some of you guys, you might think that's a bit odd in the imagery. Um, Revelation 19 has two great images. The first one is this, the wedding of the lamb, Jesus Christ, who would come and take his bride, the church. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And then the second great image is more of a guy image. It's, it's the, the coming champion, the warrior king who is to come. But first, this great image found in Revelation 19, I would like you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 19. And listen to God's invitation to this moment. Now, a little context, if you're new with us or if you haven't been with us for a while, Revelation 18, we're going through the whole book of Revelation. There's some wonderful images, but probably the greatest images in Revelation are found here, right at the end of the book. And especially here in Romans, I mean, Revelation chapter 19, where these fantastic images, first, the marriage of the Lamb, and the call of God's church out, the coming of Jesus to earth, the second coming, and what happens when that moment arrives, a moment that all of history has been looking for and pointing toward where Jesus comes back and he's revealed. Not in the way that some of us, when we have this image of Jesus, maybe perhaps you have that picture hanging in your hall or your grandma's place has got that picture of Jesus that looks a little milk toastish. That's not the Revelation 19 image of Jesus. And hopefully when you see Jesus, And this picture given, you'll go, wow, that's arresting. That's something to look forward to. But here in this image, it begins with this moment. Revelation 18 left us with this scene. A a funeral dirge is being played. And it's it's a funeral for all those people who have placed their hope in things that are false. And the material stuff that we have. All those people who had banked on everything, invested as their highest priority material goods and saw it wiped out completely in a moment of God's judgment to help clarify priorities and values that if I place my values 
and the things that do not last, I'm empty at the end of days. But if I've placed my values, my highest priorities in Jesus being Lord, then something I have will never be taken away. And I can look forward to this great moment with anticipation. Some of you have looked forward to uh, being married. Some of you looked forward to being married um, and you anticipated that and you had your weddings already. Think about that moment of anticipation, just the longing for it and all the things that go into it. I have one of my favorite moments at a wedding is just before the wedding happens. In the backstage, I'll take the groom and, you know, he'll be pacing nervously and thinking about what's about to happen. And he's got all these butterflies happening and the bride's off with her girls and they're all nervous and she's sweating it. You know, she's wondering if I'm going to be the perfect bride and everything. And she's right behind. I can, I just see Mark. I'm just smiling at you, brother, because I just did his wedding recently and then he was pacing and sweating it, you know, and the great moment of us just praying together and knowing that God is in the middle of this. Well, that anticipation really pales compared to this moment in history where we all look forward to the perfect bridegroom, Jesus, and his taking of the church. So Revelation 19 changes from this funeral dirge of everything being lost with those people pursuing material stuff to when we all as the church with great anticipation look forward to the coming of Jesus and what happens in that moment. And this is what happens. Revelation 19 begins this way, starting in verse one. After this, that is all the judgment and the loss of material things. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. So capture the audio, if you would, of this fantastic sound. And they're shouting something that in all of the New Testament has not been said. It's, it's a word that's been reserved like to this moment in time. It's this really wonderful word that gets repeated multiple times in Revelation 19, but hasn't been voiced yet. It's a, it's a word that maybe you've heard before. It's an all of this great multitude resounds with this word. Hallelujah. Right? The Lord Yahweh saves. It's a recognition that all of it, all of my investment, all of my commitment, my belief, my dependence on Christ, it is coming true. More than I ever anticipated or expected. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. It's the realization that that's true beyond a shadow of a doubt that salvation and glory and power, it all belongs to God. Nothing else that anybody else has pursued. For his judgments are true and just. All that we've seen leading up to this in the book of Revelation, even though many of, its, many of the things have seen harsh and overwhelming, it's all true and all just. For he is judged, that is God has judged, the great prostitute, that which would take the love of God and twist it to a self-love and try to steal the glory of God in Satan's plan. And who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Those people who had been martyred are now, are now the ones that are able to claim victory. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah, as God be praised. He's our salvation. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It's a 
the scene of the, the sweetness of the incense of conversation between the prayers of God's saints and, his, and God himself. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen and hallelujah. There's that word again. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And with the coming of Jesus, uncontainable joy breaks out. Like this anticipated moment of all of history looking forward to this wedding. And all of a sudden, you're there. And it's better than what you anticipate. It's better than, like the British do weddings great, don't they? They do fantastic celebrations. It's all royal and great choirs and pipes, organs, you know, all that stuff. But this is far beyond what they pull off this moment. And this is the moment we look forward to according to God's word. And Jesus is revealed. He comes. And it's really a moment beyond expectation and description. And then read with me verses six through eight. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, even better than what we heard last night or this morning early, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So who's the bride again? The scripture says that it's all those who have trusted Christ, who have come into relationship with God by faith. Now that's New Testament believers, we're told in Ephesians chapter 5. Those of you who have been through marriage counseling here, we know that we always spend a little time in Ephesians chapter 5 because it gives great instruction for us to mutually submit ourselves to one another. It gives us guidance and it helps us see that our model for how we treat each other as men and women in a marriage commitment is how Christ treats us. So Ephesians chapter 5 says this, that Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. That's the picture of what Christ did when he went on the cross and gave his very life for you to demonstrate his love for you so that you would never question that. And so that you might have life eternal through him. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that is, to make her pure and holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, absolutely sparkling and radiant and pure. Now, um, because I have this great job, I sometimes get to be in this place where, you know, that moment comes in the wedding and uh, everyone's anticipating it and the bride is right there at the door and the groom's getting all antsy, you know, and the, and the groomsmen are making sure that the groom doesn't scoot out or whatever, get you know, cold feet and run or whatever. And, and the bride's right there and they open the door and everyone looks and they're like, wow, she spent a lot of time looking so great and, you know, spent a lot of money on that dress or whatever. But this is the moment in scripture 
that, that we have been dressed by something far greater than, you know, several hundred dollars on a dress or a lot of makeup or whatever it could do, that, that we look great. And we look great because we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Not our own good stuff that we have done, but God has done a far better work for us. So the Bible is clear that all of our righteous activity, all of the things that we try to generate to be good, they're like filthy rags comparison to this beautiful bride's outfit, the the sparkling, radiant look of the bride that God has dressed us with. And he's dressed us with his own righteousness. If If you take a look at the language there in Revelation 19, it helps us see it that it's not our own righteousness, but it was granted her to clothe herself. God gave this outfit as a gift to the bride, to us, his own righteousness was given to us. So the picture in God's word is this. That Jesus died on a cross. He shed his own blood, his life given for us. That we might have the righteousness of Christ. His own righteousness who was pure and innocent. And our guilt taken away. Our shame taken away. And we're dressed with the righteousness of Christ as a pure and spotless bride that would be able to come down. And it's not just New Testament saints, but in Matthew chapter eight, it tells us that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the wedding feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the kingdom of God. It's it's talking about this whole legacy, this whole history of people who have placed their faith in God. And now all nations, cultures, races, tribes, socioeconomic groups, all of us represented who have placed our faith in God, we, st- we stand at the door ready to walk down the aisle in this wonderful moment that history has all pointed to when Christ comes to take the bride for himself. And there's this blending of the Old Testament and New Testament saints in the bride of the Lamb. And we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that those deeds that are done for our self-glorification or things to make us look good, or in the energy of our own flesh, the stuff that we're trying to do for us, all that stuff gets burned up. It's worthless. It, it, it will have no value at the end. And all that's left is the righteous deeds, God's righteous deeds of the saints, those that he has gifted us with, allowed us to perform, and that's what we're, we're dressed in at the end. See, no good deed we do is truly righteous unless it's redeemed purchased by Jesus and washed by his righteousness. And that's the image here at this wedding. So read verses nine and 10 with me and just see the privilege of this moment. So, and the angel said to me, write this. Oh, excuse me. You know, I, I skipped reading six through eight, which is such a great text. It says this. And then I, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. I read that already, didn't I? Maybe it's the Lord just reminding me about how sweet this is. Yeah, sometimes, um, yeah, I will do it again. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Because that's not my habit, is it? My habit's not to give him glory. It's to seek my own glory. The marriage of the lamb has come. 
and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Skipping to verse 11. And then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. So at the end, excuse me, verse (laughs) verse 9. I did skip verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's great privilege in this invitation God has given us. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Have you ever been to a wedding where um, there's a, a blender? Actually, I probably should ask the question this way. Have you ever been to a wedding where there's not something that goes south a little bit? I think every wedding I've ever been to, there's, you know, the bride's looking forward to perfection and so is the mom. And so there's a lot of pressure, right? And because of that pressure, something always goes a little off, which actually leads to joy in the moment because everybody in the, in the congregation that's witnessing it thinks, oh, that's great. That's pretty funny, isn't it? You know, like, so the groom comes and you've seen these things happen. I've seen them happen in the weddings that I've done where somebody's written on the groom's shoes, you know, so if he goes to a kneeling bench, they can read the message on it. Or um, one of the people in the wedding party, either a groomsman, I've seen this happen, or one of the bridesmaids like gets their knees locked and they start to wobble a little bit and you know what's gonna happen. You try to save, rescue it. Bam, they go down. Those things happen or something, you know, somebody plays a prank with their ring or all those things happen and they, they kind of make you laugh a little bit in the moment and they help you see that it's not quite perfect. But in this moment that God has designed, it's going to be a a perfect moment. But here, there's a blunder. And I don't know how John makes this blunder because throughout the book of Revelation, he sees angels and he sees how great they look, but he knows that the the sinner is not the angels. But John caught up in the moment of this wedding. What does he do? He makes a big mistake, doesn't he? It's a huge mistake, actually. It's the mistake you never want to do. But he worships something beside God. He, he worships this angel. He's caught up with the glory of this angel and how majestic it looks. And so he starts worshiping this angel. And right away, the angel says, stop it. Don't do that. Now, that's a fascinating thing that happens. Uh, you know that every Tuesday morning, get together with our pastors and we talk about the pastors. And Fred was just mentioning this last week how um, he was struck by this moment that you know, in, in history, Satan has tried to get this to happen for him, for people to worship him. That's his design for you, to worship something that's false, deceptive. And that's how he led all these people that are judged in Revelation 18 down the wrong path. But here this angel, you know, who's got, you know, this power and authority instantaneously says, don't ever do that. Don't ever go there. Instead, worship Jesus alone. Why? Because it says in this last line here, it says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does that mean? It means that from the very beginning of scripture, God's word, the testimony of God has been pointing to Jesus. All prophecy, prophetic word, leads one place, leads you to a place, and that is to worship God, to Jesus Christ, God's own son given for us. 
It's leading that direction. Jesus is at the very center of what happens here. No other thing, not an angel, so he shouldn't be worshipped. But Jesus alone should be worshipped. Samuel Rutherford has said this. Um, he's a 17th century follower of Jesus, and he wrote hymns and um, was a very well-known pastor. He's, he wrote these words. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. And I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's lamb. The lamb's all the glory. And so the attention should be there. And the angel catches it in the moment. John's wedding blunder blunder turns into a moment where he's corrected. And we're corrected to know that all biblical prophecy, it leads to Jesus. John Walvert has said this, that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think he really got it right there. It's to reveal that very thing, the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Savior. So those of you who are married, how many of you had a wedding album? A few of you have a wedding album? Or do you have a wedding album? Do you guys have a wedding album? The pictures that were taken of your wedding just a couple years ago? <laughs> they had cameras back then, huh? Just kidding. I'm just giving you a hard time. But you've been married a few years, haven't you? How many, how many years have you guys been married? 62. Isn't that great? Isn't that cool? Yeah. 62 years. I was talking with Betty and Forrest West earlier. Um, and some of you know that they've been married for almost 62, I think it's 58 years. And I was talking about uh, doing a wedding and that Forrest was invited to the wedding. He says, I already did one like 58 years ago. I don't need to do another one. I said, oh no, yeah, you actually do. There's one more in store for you. And it's better than the first one. It's, it's this one that's painted for us here that we're going to be at the center of this great unfolding of Jesus who comes for us, his bride. So we've got this uh, wedding album, like many of you have, and we have some doofy pictures in ours. I looked a lot younger for some reason then. And um, we decided to take some funny pictures. We've got some funny pictures in ours, just so when people are not all serious when they look through our wedding album. But this wedding picture for us, the, the image is all about Jesus and his glory and his majesty. And that's why Revelation 19 unfolds who Jesus is. And it gets us a deeper picture of his beauty and what exactly he's done for us. That you did nothing to be able to deserve this kind of relationship with God, to be dressed in his righteousness. It's not just a gift of him rescuing you from sin, but him dressing you in a beautiful way, him inviting you to intimate relationship with himself. So the first picture for us here in the first half of Revelation 19 is of this invitation for us to a wedding, to our wedding with Christ himself. And then there's a, a second image that begins here in Revelation 19 verse, um, 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. So a very different picture from the wedding picture, right? More of a guy picture. And the picture is of this conquering hero. Oh, in Rome, when the great conquering army of Rome would come back after a great victory, the, 
the general, whoever led the armies would come in with a white steed riding in this white steed. And this is the image that's being painted by John that it's not just, that would look like a Shetland pony. This is a great white steed. And, and on this white horse is the conquering warrior. It's Jesus. Very different picture of Jesus. And I want you to see it for what it is. See Christ in maybe a different perspective than what you've envisioned before. And look at the, nine, the names for Jesus that are described here. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. He doesn't have many heads like the false prophet and beasts before. But just one head and he has all the crowns on it. He is the king of kings. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Isn't that an interesting comment? He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It's an image of his sacrifice given for us. The cost of him and his victory. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Uh, John writes this in Revelation the of his image of what he has. And remember John chapter one and the power of that, the living word of God and what it says there in John one, when you think about this image here. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them or shepherd them, the word could mean as well. With a rod of iron. It's a picture told to us in Psalm 2. And he will tread the winepress to the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. So several names given to him there. And let's examine them just briefly. The first is he's called. Yeah, you got it. That he's faithful and true. So you have to love this, especially in the context of weddings. And especially when many of us have known the pain of division in our marriage, divorce and the wreckage of that, whether that's your own marriage or the marriage of maybe your parents or people who are near and dear and close to you. And you've seen the heartache of that. Here's the picture. God will never do that to you because he's faithful. That's his nature. Regardless of your unfaithfulness, he is faithful and true. Isn't that sweet news? That God himself is faithful to you and he's true to you. So he will always be true to his word, to his promises. He's a faithful God and that's written on him. And then this second statement, he has a mystery name. What's that about? What do you think, Jim? I, it's an interesting one, isn't it? So in the middle of the names, the descriptions of Jesus, we have this picture that um, John can't figure it out. It's a mystery name and only Jesus knows it. But why is that included in the description? I don't know. <laughs> I, I really don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, so I, I can't tell you. But, but there is part of this, that there's this ongoing discovery that we will always have into the depth and the riches of our Lord and Savior Jesus, that you'll know him. Perhaps you came to know him first many years ago. Those people who have known the Lord and walked with the Lord for a lot of years would tell you, you know what? I'm still getting to know him. And even as we look in scripture and he reveals more and more of himself to us, 
There's more to be known. So there's, there's a mystery of his identity here. And we're not exactly sure, but it's included in the description here. And he is called the word of God. He is called, let me get this imagery here. So this, he comes out on this white steed and he's got all these names for him. And he comes out as the word of God, which scripture says is a two-edged sword. And it's able to get to the very heart of us, right? To the very depth, scripture says, even into the, to the marrow of us. It brings conviction and correction and encouragement to us. That's the word of God. And it's his very name that, that he is not just a warrior, but he's a warrior who is after us, our hearts. He is the very word of God, it says. A great description of Jesus is, is unfolding for us as we dig into his living word here. And that's, that's part of his identity. As the, and then there's one last descriptive phrase. And it's, it's found at the end of that paragraph that he has this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the, the king without peer. Now, there are a lot of pretenders to the throne in Revelation. And there still are pretenders even today, right? To the throne of who would take my greatest allegiance. And there is only one king of kings. And that's Jesus. That's what scripture is very clear on. And there's a lot of things that would try to be the master of my heart. But there's only one Lord of Lords. And it's written on him a couple times. So I couldn't you know, miss the imagery here that he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And when he comes back, we'll all see his identity in that way, that he is the master and he is the sovereign of all. Now, one last description of what this king is going to do, starting in verse 17. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. So the angel is actually brighter than the sun, reflecting the glory of God, how How great is that? And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Now, for those of you guys, this is the great scene where it gets a little gross, right? And it's really like one of those scenes where you're like, oh, that's that's cool. Included blood and guts there. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. All those who have warred against God at this point, the battle of Armageddon described for us earlier in Revelation of an army of 200 million that come against God and they are all thrown down and become bird food at this point. And how does that happen? I I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. That's against Jesus. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. Remember in in the imagery, the picture of the story of Revelation that Satan's agenda was to lead all these people to false worship against Jesus. And here he leads him at the end against Jesus to battle against him. 
And these two, that is the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's a description of hell itself. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with the flesh. Now, how does it happen? How does, how does Jesus gain this great victory at the end over this giant army? You know what happens? What does the scripture says? The same way he created with a word, just with a word. That's, that's power, right? So at the end of this great battle, Jesus wins this great victory just with a word, a sovereign word that rules over all to help us understand the power of who he is, that he has no rival. He has no peer. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he will one day gain this great victory The beast and the false prophet are thrown into hell. Others, and by the way, apparently thrown live there. And the rest were slain. The rest were killed who had followed them, who had been deceived. And then what about the dragon, right? Because the dragon is this image of Satan itself. What happens to Satan itself? You're going to have to come back next week to discover that because discover that in Revelation chapter 20. So, point of the text. Where is this leading us, right? That's the question we want to keep asking ourselves. In this great battle that's also described for us in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Joel 2 and Daniel chapter 11 and Isaiah 24 and Isaiah 64, this battle is won unquestionably by the king of kings, simply with a word. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane as they're about to take Jesus about to arrest him and take him to the cross. And he's asked his identity and he simply says, I am. And they all fall down in that moment because they're not in charge, right? Jesus is in charge. This is one of those moments, only even a mightier one with one word. He falls this whole mighty army. I love one of my favorite hymns written by Luther A mighty fortress is our God. You might love that too. And there's a phrase in there that says this, one little word will fell him. Satan and all his plans are are defeated by one word of Christ. So the big question is, what do you do with this Jesus, right? What do you do with someone who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Perhaps you've never really got serious about a relationship with God. And maybe this is the first time you've just come and you're, you're listening to this, or perhaps you've heard it a thousand times before, but you've never really gotten serious about your relationship. It's really very straightforward. It starts with you acknowledging that you have no righteousness in and of your own activity. You're not going to like come before God and he's going to weigh your sins and your good stuff and say, oh, your good stuff outbalances that. That's not how God operates according to the Bible. No, all, all your righteousness is rags and, and you are sunk unless you have the righteousness of God. So you acknowledge your sin before God and say, I can't do it. I, I have sinned against you. I've worshiped false things. I need a relationship with you and I can't do it of my own strength. You start there. And, and then you come to a place where you just trust him. That he is the king of kings and you, you acknowledge that, that he's the one that's in charge and you're not in charge. 
You trust him for eternity, for your life, for this great moment to be the bride of Christ. And, and finally, you turn, you do a 180 from going your own direction and you call him Lord of Lords. You, you follow him, you commit your life to follow him. It's just that simple. And a prayer, just a moment, and commit yourself to him. And if you're a person who has done that already, I thank God because you're part of the church, you're part of the bride. But I would just ask you, you know, as we've reflected a little bit about this fantastic picture of who Jesus is, his power and his greatness, where is it that, that your own understanding of Jesus has been weak and anemic? You're not seeing him for the God he really is and where you've been holding on to a part of your life and not really acknowledge that he is the Lord of all. And just make a statement this this week, Lord, you really truly are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You're in charge of all that I am and, and all that I'll ever know. Would you pray with me, please? Father, um, just in this moment, just we acknowledge that you are great. That you, Jesus, are far greater than we often think of you. And, uh, and you rightfully call out our allegiance, our wholehearted allegiance to you. For those that came, Lord, this morning who don't have a relationship with you, I, I pray that they would courageously just take the step, just tell you in their words. Just do this right now. If that's you that ascribes you, just let him know that, that you need him that you've sinned, that, that you have disobedience in your heart and your stuff in your past that provided guilt and shame and you just want to give that to him, seek his forgiveness. That you place your trust in Jesus, the Lord of Lords, alone and you turn and follow him and just commit that to him right now. You know, in words. For the rest of us, we're just call out to him as Lord and thank him for who he is, his greatness and his majesty and his love for you that's faithful and true. That he is the very living word of God and he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we thank you. We're so grateful for who you are. Keep driving us deeper in our understanding of who you are and how to follow you, how to know and love and follow you this week. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.